Dear gracious Father, we come before you once again and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that are found in your word. And uh, we just ask that you would help us learn how to fear you, how to have reverence for you and to act in a way that is appropriate to your character and to your will. We uh, thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the indwelling spirit that helps us be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we love you. Uh, In your son's name, amen. So, I think it's safe to say that all of us come from dysfunctional families. Now, some of you go, no, I didn't. But I know your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your very first grandparents, Adam and Eve, right? And they, they sinned. They were dysfunctional. And then they had kids who were also related to, and they killed each other, right? Remember uh, the one killed the other one? If that doesn't scream out dysfunction, I'm not sure you have a good definition of dysfunctional family. So we all, we all come from that, right? That, that's, we all come from families that are sinful, right? We're all sinners. God has this particular plan for us, how we're supposed to function. Anytime that we sin, we're doing the opposite of that. Therefore, it is dysfunction, right? So any family that has any sin in it is a dysfunctional family. Obviously, it's our hope as believers not to have a dysfunctional family, but it is our goal to have a strong, godly home, right? That's what we desire. We desire that our homes, our families honor the Lord and, and that they're, they're focused on the things of the Lord. And uh, as we think about this next text in, in Proverbs chapter 14, we're going to talk about how to build a godly home. Now, obviously, this is going to take a little bit longer. Uh, I'm not going to take off a big chunk because this morning I want to focus in on one particular aspect, maybe the bedrock, the, the foundation of a godly home is this concept of the fear of the Lord. That is the first building block of a godly home. Without that, there is no such thing as a solid godly home. It must have, as its bedrock, the fear of the Lord. So, we're going to look at two verses. This, well, we're going to look at a lot of verses, but we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 14, and we're going to look at these two verses. So go with me to Proverbs 14, and we'll start here in verse 1. Notice what is said in verse 1. It says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down, with her own hands. So, first of all, just take this phrase, the wise woman builds. Um, it's kind of an interesting segue. Most of the, the book of Proverbs is directed towards men, particularly young men. And so having a section start off like this, the wise woman, the question is, what is Solomon getting at by saying a wise woman? Well, first of all, I would say exegetically, Uh, Solomon is giving advice to young men for the type of women to look for, right? 
as you're looking for a future mate, you need to be looking for a wise woman. It would also go to women, that women should realize that wisdom is building, is edifying. A wise woman builds a home. Uh, obviously, a foolish woman, what, tears it, tears it down. We could then also just say, just by implication, it's not... Re- it could also apply to every single person, right? Every single person. So the question then is, what does it mean to build her home? And it's my contention that from this point on, all the way down to verse 11, if you look at each one of those verses, it's going to give a description that we would all say, yes, that is exactly what it looks like to build a home. And, and then we would then see the converse as being true as well, right? This opposite that a fool tears down her house or a fool tears down his house and it gives what that looks like, right? And, and it kind of is bookmarked by verse 11 and just jump down to verse 11, notice what it says. It says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed but the tent of the upright will, be, will flourish. So it seems as if in this 11 verses there is this discussion about building a home and the discussion of what does that look like to build a home so what does it look like to build well we're going to see all of these different things from verse 2 to verse 10 about what does it look like to build a home and the word house here is probably used very close to how we would use the word home right household it's not talking about a wise woman is actually going to grab hammer and nails and go out and build a house it's speaking of that a wise person is thinking about how they can build up their family so that their family is wise and lives for the lord that's the idea a wise person wants to build wants everyone to be wise wants everyone to look like the lord jesus christ that's what a wise person wants that's great isn't it Then we all want that in our families, right? Then to be built up. Unfortunately, in every family, and even we have been a part of being fools and tearing it down. I would suggest, and I think later on in this text we'll see this, that any time that somebody sins, that is eroding the family away. You want to know what causes family erosions? Sin. That's it. Every single one of our sins has a negative effect on others. There's no such thing as just a sin that just hurts me. Every sin has an impact on others, and specifically those whom we are the closest. So if if a wise woman is wanting all these spiritual attributes and people walking for the Lord, then a foolish one is tearing down the family, destroying the family, meaning that the advice and their, their example and what they're doing every time they're amongst family members is foolishness, right? And, and just notice the image here of the fool. The fool is tearing it down with her own hands. Think of that image of somebody going outside to their house and grabbing piece by piece, pulling their house down. That's what a fool is doing. It just wants it totally destroyed. It's, it's, the, the foolish action is going to destroy the house. So in one sense, we could say this sermon is how to build a godly home. We could also say that this sermon is on how we don't destroy our home, right? 
So let's go to the first building block, and we're going to spend the lion's share of this morning on this one, on this next verse. Because in my mind, as I was looking at this text, I thought this is the most important building block of a family, the most, build, most important building block of any home. And notice what it says in verse 2. It says, He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. So here we have this one who's walking. Remember in the book of Proverbs, walking is referring to a particular lifestyle, the way that somebody lives, the way that somebody acts. It speaks of their entirety of their life. So as this person is living life, their, their overall character is one of uprightness. Notice that he's walking in his own righteousness. We spent a lot of time talking about this concept of righteousness as for us as believers And remember, as believers, the only way that you and I can be righteous is through Jesus. There's really nothing you and I can do to be righteous. It's Jesus. In fact, anytime that we've tried to be righteous, all we've been able to do is unrighteousness, right? But God, in his great love and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins. And what does the scripture say that the person, when they place their faith solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, what happens to that person? They're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Thus, God sees them as being righteous because they have the righteousness of Jesus. And from that righteousness of Jesus flows righteousness of life, right? That's what the Spirit's doing. He's empowering us to live righteously, to walk according to God's word. This, so when, when we walk righteously, in, in a sense, it's the, out, the, the product, the, the produce of the work of God upon every sinner's heart, right? That's what it is. So we would say for us as believers to walk in uprightness would be this idea of living the Christian life, right? Living the Christian life, empowered by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit. But it is interesting, the next phrase. Because I think this is really what Solomon wants us to think about, is this part, right? So he who walks in his uprightness, what is this person? How does he describe this person? Fears the Lord. I've lamented before, and I'm going to lament again. So just bear with me if this is old hat. I remember as a kid we used to describe faithful believers as those who feared the Lord. I, I, I don't know if you, that was a saying where you went to church, but when I grew up in Pennsylvania, that was one of the things. Oh, that's a God-fearing Christian, right? And, and that meant something. That meant that that person took their walk with the Lord very serious. It, it, was, it wasn't that they were religious. It was that they really cared about the Lord. They really wanted to be obedient. They spent time studying God's word. They spent time thinking about what they were supposed to do. Anymore, if you were to say to someone, that one is a God-fearer, I'm not, I'm not sure that the majority of people who go to church would even have a grasp of what that would mean. In fact, you might even get pushback to say, well, we're not supposed to fear God, we're supposed to love him. To which we should all then reply, you then do not understand the fear of the Lord. 
If you think that fearing the Lord means that I don't love him, then you do not understand what the Bible has to say. And if you've never come across that phrase, the fear of the Lord, before, you probably have not been reading the Bible. This phrase is peppered all over the scriptures. And if you have read the Bible, you have seen it numerous times. So let's kind of talk about what this means, because I really want to dive into the fear of the Lord. This is the bedrock, right? This, is, this, this, this attitude, having this fear of the Lord, is the most important thing. So the question is, what does it mean to fear? Well, in the Bible, we know that the word fear has a wide range of nuances, right? And normally, the word fear, at least in English, has the concept of um, perceiving a threat, right? There's something that's a threat. There's something that's scary. There's something that's dangerous. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, are we saying that the Lord is dangerous? Of course he is. He's not safe, right? I mean, I mean of course he is. This is he, he is something other than us. We are creatures. He is holy. In fact, in fact anyone that has ever come in contact with God has immediately fall on their face, right? Anyone who has seen the Shekinah glory of God has fallen on their face. Now, there is a reaction that believers have, which is known as the fear of the Lord, and then there are other people who run away from the Lord out of fear, okay? So, like, for example, just turn with me quickly to Revelation 6, verse 16. Here is a a group of people running away from the Lord out of fear, not, out, not because they are fearing the Lord, but because they are afraid of God's judgment, and they assume that they can, by their own actions, escape the judgments of God. So notice just here in Revelation six sixteen, this is at the beginning part of the, the Great Tribulation, which is yet to have happened. Notice what these people say. And they say to the mountains, so these are the people who are being, who are being uh, 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 judged by the Lord. And so they're saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is, this is hiding. This is running away. This is not the fear of the Lord. This is not what your family's supposed to be built on is... Let's not have a relationship with the Lord. Let's not take him seriously. Let's not submit to him. This is the assumption by a fallen mind that if God doesn't see me, he won't punish me. Right? I I can't read that any other way. Right? Hide us from the wrath of God. In their mind, they thought, if Jesus can't see me, then he's not going to punish me. I can somehow escape. I don't have to change my life. All I got to do is just wait wait out this punishment, and then I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I can outlast the lamb. I can outlast Jesus. That, 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 in, that is the thinking of these people. This is not what the believer is supposed to have. In fact, the believer is supposed to have this incredible view of God that is, causes us to see ourselves for who we are, see him and then cause us to go, I am a sinner. There's a couple passages normally when I think of the fear of the Lord that I, I like to think about first. 
just to kind of get my mind right on, on the subject and thinking correctly about the subject. And the first one is found in Exodus 15, verse 11. Now, just bear with me. It doesn't have the word, the fear of the Lord, and you're just going to have to listen to me here explain a little bit of why I I normally think of this text in in dealing with the fear of the Lord and the believer's concept of the fear of the Lord. So this is right after the, the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses and the Israelites are on the other side, and they begin to praise God, and Moses breaks out into a song and notice what he says in verse 11 he says who is like you among the gods O lord who is like you the answer by the way is no one right that's what he's trying to say he's using a i don't think moses is sitting there going maybe there's somebody out there like him no he is using a rhetorical device to demonstrate there is no one like god that's why he says it twice who is like you Who is like you to demonstrate fully that there is no one like God? And so when Moses then describes God, notice what he says next after he says, Who is like you? Assuming the answer, there's no one like you. Emphatically, there's no one like you. He says, Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. That is, that's like trying to scuba dive in a black hole, trying to figure out, the full meaning of that particular phrase. That is an incredibly deep phrase. And I've often thought about this thing that Moses has said about the Lord, that he's majestic in holiness, that he is spectacular, right? There's this, there's this awe about him, right? He's majestic. He inspires awe. He inspires this sense of feeling so small, of, of feeling debased. I, I, I look at his attributes and I think of myself and say he is so much greater, so much grander, so much holier, so much more spectacular than I am. And, and, then, and then he's majestic in that. He, he, is, he is truly awesome, causing awe in the mind of the person who thinks of him. And, and the, the part that is so awesome about him is his holiness, When I think of this word holiness, I, I, I think of two things. I, the first aspect of the word holiness, biblically, is this idea of separation. Separation, right? That, that's really what the, the root word means for holiness. It means to separate. It's, a, it's actually a word used for butchers to, when they would cut the meat and they would set aside the better cuts, right? That, that's the kind of the idea, separate otherness and then speaking of god thinking of his otherness we're talking about this being that is transcendent right at the heart of calling god holy it's saying you are transcendent you are far above me right you are way above me there's a sense of he's the creator i am the creature So the sense that Moses has, and remember, Moses did see the burning bush, and Moses did have some view of this, of a visible representation of God. And in his mind, as he distinguishes between what people may call these so-called gods and the actual true God, he says, you are truly awesome 
inspiring awe, leaving us speechless, leaving us debased in the sense of your transcendence, of how big you are, of how grand you are, of how much higher you are. Now, the second part of this word holiness does speak of his actions and speaks of even our actions. We're called to be holy, right? We're called to be set apart from the world. And our actions are to be set apart from those actions that we used to do as non-believers. That's what the word holiness means, set apart. Now, there's one other text that I think of when I think of this incredible idea of how God is awe-inspiring and and there's this sense of debasement, there's this sense of uh uh-oh, right? There's a sense of littleness, there's a sense of his bigness, of his grandeur, and that has to be Isaiah 6. So go with me to Isaiah 6 just quickly. Isaiah 6. Obviously, verse 1, we'll start in verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim flew above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his wings, and with two he flew. And calling out to one another, they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds were tre- trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is being Isaiah, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the, one of the seraphim flew down to me with a burning coal in his hand. And he had touched, he had taken from the altar with the tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this text, and forgive me if I leave out some of these details, because there's specific things I want us to notice just in, in this in this explanation. First of all, notice that Isaiah is in the temple as he's praying, and he automatically is seeing this vision of the Lord. And it is incredible that the Lord is sitting on his throne. And notice the description. He is lofty and exalted. It speaks of his transcendence, right? He is bigger than me. And then it says the train of his robe, which demonstrates his authority, is filling the temple And then you have these six angels with six wings flying around and they are calling out to one another as they're referring to the Lord in the temple. If try to use your imagination and try to think about this for a moment of what he is seeing. There's these angels flying around and they're calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. I I, I normally see these holy of holies uh, these holy, holy, holies in, in two ways. One, that God is so holy that one holy doesn't really necessarily describe it, and it needs three holinesses. And then I would also say, because I'm a Trinitarian, I believe that there is one God in three persons, one nature in three persons, that they could easily, 
be addressing each one of the members of the Trinity are, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. So here is God. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. This phrase of glory is, is really important. Um, nine times out of ten, when we think of glory, we either think it of two ways. We think of God's glory as just this brilliant light, and that's all it is. Just this physical representation of God gets shot with a light. Or we think of its speaking of someone's exploits, right? The glory days, right? Remember the glory days when we used to do all that fun stuff, right? When we think about God's glory, however, we need to think of his glory as this, the sum total of his being, right? It is everything who he is. So think about then what what he's saying, what these angels are saying. They're saying God is holy, he's transcendent, and the whole earth is full of evidence of his being and of his character. God is transcendent, and God is also imminent. He is the God who's right here. Incredible truth, incredible truth. And as they're saying this, just imagine this earthquake and this booming voice, and then everything is filled with smoke, and Isaiah has the right response, because I don't think there's any other response. I don't know of any other response. Everyone who's been in this type of situation has had the same response, which is, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a sinner. They see their own smallness in light of God's grandeur. They see their own sinfulness in the light of his righteousness. And confronted with the fullness of his being, the only conclusion is, "Uh uh-oh, that is it. And notice then he just says, the only thing he can think of is, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've said terrible things because I live among people of unclean lips. And now I've seen the king of glory. Interesting part of the narrative then is that this angel flies down and touches, touches his lips with this tongue, with the burning coal, thus demonstrating that he's cleansed. And I would just simply ask a question for you to think about. What did Isaiah do to deserve to be cleansed? What did he say? Nothing. He just realized who he was in light of who God is and says, "Uh uh-oh. And then he then gets this incredible gift from an act of God towards him, independent of anything that he's done, saying, you are now forgiven. God, based off of his character, off of his decision, cleansed Isaiah. And then after he's cleansed, then notice what the Lord says, who shall I send? And then Isaiah says, well, send me. So as I think about Isaiah, and and I look at this text, it's interesting. He sees this majestic holiness of God. He sees the character of God. He sees his own sinfulness. He's forgiven by a sovereign act of God. And then he has then the desire to do what God wants. And when I think about the believer, and I think about this concept of the fear of the Lord, it's the same, right? When I first heard the gospel, I was confronted with the holiness of God. The glory of God, right? As a little kid, I memorized that verse, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That immediately caused 
caused me and the people that were explaining the gospel to me to show the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, the character of God, and who I am when I match myself up with God. And I immediately see how big God is, how holy God is, how sinful and small I am. And then, as I continued to hear the gospel explained to me, it was the Spirit working on my heart opening my ears, changing my heart, so that at the moment when the gospel presentation was presented, that you are a sinner, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. The Spirit worked on my heart that when I heard the word believe, my heart said the only option is Jesus. The only option is to believe. That's it. I have no other option. And then from that, is there not this changed attitude to do what God desires? Now, I'm a believer and that first initial concept of God's righteousness, of his holiness, of his glory, that hasn't left, right? That's still there. God is still the God that is high and exalted. He still is the God who's holy, holy, holy. That doesn't change because now I'm a believer. The only thing that has changed is that I am forgiven, given a new desire. I was invited by the king of glory to believe in him, and he changed my desires to respect him, to honor him, to listen to him, and be pleasing. That is the fear of the Lord. That's what it means. And so the scriptures says a lot. So just allow me to go through a couple of these verses. If I skip your favorite one, that's okay. Just tell your neighbor afterwards, and then you guys stay and talk about it. If I missed it, great. Then you could just talk about the fear of the Lord some more. But th there's a couple notable ones that, that I think are, are, are really helpful for me also in this, dis in this discussion. Go with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This is an interesting psalm. Um, it is... I would consider one of those prophetic psalms that speaks of this future reality of the second advent of Christ. Whether this is at the beginning of that advent or towards the end of the millennial reign, I'm not sure we can really discern that. But I will say this, that the advice is true in both scenarios. So what you have in the first three verses is this, these kings and these people coming against God saying, we're not going to listen to him anymore. We're not going to listen. Everything that he said has been like cords on us. We're going to throw those cords off. And to their reaction of throwing off these cords and somehow overthrowing God, God then sits up in heaven. And notice what he says in verse 4. He says, God sits in heaven and laughs. By the way, there's only a couple times where it refers to God laughing. It's always in this context. It's always in the context of a human saying, we're going to beat you up, God. We're going to, we're going to overthrow you. And God sits up there going, yeah, right. What, what are you going to do? What, what, how? How? How is that going to be possible? So he laughs and he scoffs at him. He is scoffing. And then at verse 5, he speaks to them in his anger and he terrifies them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of, his de of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. So obviously verse 7 then switches characters, right? 
So it has God laughing in heaven. And then verse 7 is the one who receives this message. And it can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ right here, verse 7, that he is the Son of God, and he's heard this decree. And notice what he says in verse 8. Ask of me, and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance to the ends of the earth as your possession. This is Jesus Christ. This belongs to Jesus Christ. He will be the ruler and inherit the entirety of the world, right? That's him. And he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, these people who are coming up against him. It's like a baseball bat to a, to a pot, right, to clay pots. Yeah, that clay pot's not going to put up much of a resistance, right? And you shall shatter them like earthenware. And then, and then it, now it shifts, right? Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. So before, it's, it's talking about the situation, talking about God's response. It talks about how he commands Jesus, how Jesus is supposed to respond. And then in verse 10, then the advice then switches to these kings. And notice the advice that's given. He says, now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Three words there that are really important to help us understand the fear of the Lord. It's worship with reverence, rejoice with trembling, and do homage to the Son. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To honor Him and take Him serious. To take great great pains in thinking about the Lord. And as I'm thinking about who he is, and I realize who I'm addressing, I'm addressing the sovereign creator of the universe who's omniscient and and omnipotent and, and, and is completely loving and gracious, but he's also the great judge. As I'm addressing this one, singing praises to him, this isn't casual, right? This is a serious business. And so even in my rejoicing of thanking of what he's done for me, there's a sense of this is not a casual encounter. And then to do homage to the son, to bow down, to worship the son, that is what it means to fear the Lord. Now, I've heard some people say, well, the, the, the fear of the Lord is really only an Old Testament doctrine. In the, gospel, in the New Testament, it's all about love, no fear. Once again, got to just say, you got to read your Bible, folks, because that is not the case. Go with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit continue to increase. Now think of that. Think of Luke's description. Here's the church. How did he mark them? Peace. They had peace. They were content. They had joy in Christ. They were building one another up in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There was edification. They were seeking to build up one another out of love. What else were they doing? They, the way that they approached this was with this reverential fear, listening to the commands of God, obeying the commands of God, taking this serious, and they're also receiving the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they're continuing to increase, yes, in number, but also spiritually with the Lord. 
So notice that a person who is going on in the fear of the Lord is not huddled in the corner, shielding their eyes from God, but is rather one who is content in what God has offered, building up one another, is being comforted by the Holy Spirit, and is constantly growing. There's so many more. We could go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We could go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you also obeyed as in my presence, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation or sanctification with fear and trembling. We could think of Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 8 where he talks about fear. We've not been called to fear of the, to that slave-like fear, but we've been called to a God that we can call Father. This, is, this attitude of reverence, of taking God serious, of looking at his word and saying, this is what we're going to do, knowing God and knowing the character of God and being obedient and worshiping Jesus, this must be the foundation of every godly household. If it is not the foundation of the household, it will crumble away. Some of you may say, that sounds all fine and good, Caleb, but how do I build in the fear of the Lord to my family? (laughs) You can't. You go, well, then why talk about it if we can't do it? The fear of the Lord is a response of God's work on the human heart. The fear of the Lord is a response of knowing God. The fear of the Lord is as a response of knowing the word. So I can't make you fear the Lord, but I can create and influence and advise times where I am exposing you to the character of God, where I'm advising you from the word of God, I can be pointing back to Jesus Christ and worshiping of Jesus Christ. And in that way, in that way, then am I not promoting the fear of the Lord and listening, right? Pointing to having a family that's honoring God and taking him serious. Now, there's another part. Go with me back to Proverbs 14, verse 2. It says, but he who is devious in his ways despises him being the Lord. So think of this. One who walks righteously, fears, honors, respects, submits, shows reverence towards the opposite. The one who actively is tearing down a house, a family, is devious. They don't don't care about God's law. They don't care about God's will. They're going to do the opposite. And ultimately, what does that demonstrate? What does that demonstrate someone who's devious in his ways? It demonstrates that they despise the Lord. That's what it means. Right? Pretty black and white. Right? That's the principle. So, we all come from families affected by sin. We all come from families where everyone is foolish and they are actively trying to destroy the family in their flesh. We all here know that's the case right so what is the response of a wise person a wise person says we got to stop that how do we stop that we're going to spend time in god's word we're going to expose ourselves to the character and attributes of god 
We're going to expose ourselves to knowing God. I'm going to spend time knowing God. Every time I get an opportunity to give advice to someone, it's always going to start off with, what does the Bible say? Who is God? It starts with this resolute attitude, kind of like Joshua. We, a couple weeks ago, we spent some time in Joshua, Joshua 24. Joshua's giving his final farewell address to the nation. He says, you guys, you've got to fear the Lord. You've got to follow the Lord. You've got to follow the law. Don't goof with these idols. And all the Israelites said, oh, yeah, no, of course, we already know that. We're doing that. And Joshua goes, guys, you've got to stop with the idols. They go, yeah, we have. If you know the story, you know they haven't. They brought them from Egypt. They still worshipped them. They worshipped them all the way up to the day of Jerusalem being uh, conquered by the Babylonians, right? So they haven't. But he says, you need to stop it. We have. Yeah, no, we totally get it. And then Joshua then makes this incredible statement. He goes, look, I don't care what you guys say, what you guys do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think there needs to be that bulldogmatic view, right? Being like a bulldog, holding on to that, saying, this is where it is. We're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to fear the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Now, I know that probably all of us have very interesting circumstances in our families that make it very difficult to give out some of this advice. My advice to you is spend a lot of time in the Word, a lot of time in prayer, and pray for opportunities to give advice, opportunities to make much of God, to glorify God with your words, to make much of His character, to pray for those people because ultimately it's the Lord working upon the heart of a sinner that causes the fear of the Lord. And so I realize that there's a lot of circumstances and we're praying for a lot of those circumstances. But regardless of how those other circumstances go, I believe that the Lord is telling you that as it depends, as much as it depends on you, You, from this moment on, fear him. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray.